the parable of the tribes. From beginning to end, Genesis 34 tells a terrifying story. Dina, Jacob's daughter, the only Jewish daughter mentioned in the entire patriarchal narratives, leaves the safety of home to go out to look at the daughters of the land. She is raped and abducted by a local prince, Shechem, son of the king of the town known as Shechem. Jacob learns of this fact but does nothing until his sons return. Shimon and Levi, Dina's brothers, immediately realize that they must act to rescue her. It's an almost impossible assignment. The hostage-taker is no ordinary individual. As the son of the king, he can't be confronted directly, and the king is unlikely to order his son to release her. The other townspeople, if challenged, will come to the prince's defense. It's Shimon and Levi against the town, two against many. Even were all of Jacob's sons to be enlisted, they would still be outnumbered. Shimon and Levi, therefore, decide on a ruse. They agree to let Dina marry the prince, but they make one condition. The members of the town must all be circumcised. They, seeing long-term advantages to an alliance with this neighboring tribe, agree. The men of the town are weakened by the operation, and the pain is most acute on the third day. That day, Shimon and Levi enter the town and kill the entire male population. They rescue Dina and bring her home. The other brothers then plunder the town. Jacob is horrified. You've made me odious to the people of the land, he says. What then was we supposed to do, asked the two brothers. Should we have left our sister to be treated like a prostitute? With that rhetorical question, the episode ends, and the narrative moves elsewhere. But Jacob's horror at the action of his sons doesn't end there. He returns to it on his deathbed and, in effect, curses them. Shimon and Levi, he says, are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Curse be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. This is an extraordinary episode. It seems to lack any kind of moral message. No one comes out of it well. Shechem, the prince, would seem to be the chief villain. It was he who abducted and raped Dina in the first place. Hamor, his father, fails to reprimand him or order Dina's release. Shimon and Levi are guilty of a horrendous act of violence. The other brothers engage in looting the town. And Jacob seems passive throughout. He neither acts nor instructs his sons how to act. Even Dina herself seems at best to have been guilty of carelessness in going out into the, into the town in the first place into what was clearly a dangerous neighborhood. After all, remember that both Abraham and Isaac, her grandfather and great-grandfather, had feared for their own lives because of the lawlessness of the times. Who was in the right and who in the wrong? are left conspicuously undecided in the text. Jacob condemns his sons, but his sons reject the criticism. The debate continued and was taken up by 
two of the greatest rabbis in the Middle Ages. Maimonides takes the side of Shimon and Levi. They were justified in what they did, he said. The other members of the town saw what Shem had done, knew that he was guilty of a crime, yet neither brought him to court nor rescued the girl. Therefore, they were accomplices in his guilt. What Shechem had done was a capital crime, and by sheltering him, the townspeople were implicated. This is, incidentally, a fascinating ruling because it suggests that for Maimonides, the rule that Kol Yisrael are all Israel are responsible for one another, is not restricted to Israel. It applies to all societies. As Isaac Arama was to write in the 15th century, any crime known about and allowed to continue ceases to be an offense of individuals only and becomes a sin of the community as a whole. Ramban Nachmanides disagrees. The principle of collective responsibility does not, in his view, apply to non-Jewish societies. The Noahide covenant requires every society to set up courts of law, but it does not imply that a failure to prosecute a wrongdoer involves all members of that society in a capital crime. The debate continues today among Bible scholars, two in particular, subject the story to close literary analysis. Mayor Sternberg in his The Poetics of Biblical Narrative and Rabbi Elchanan Samet in his studies of the Parsha. They too arrive at conflicting conclusions. Sternberg argues that the text is critical of Jacob for both his inaction and his criticism of his sons for acting. Samet sees the chief culprits as Shechem and Hamor. Both point out, however, the remarkable fact that the text deliberately deepens the moral ambiguity by refusing to portray even the apparent villains in an unduly negative light. Consider the chief wrongdoer, the young prince Shechem. The text tells us that his heart was drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get this girl as my wife. Now, compare that with the description of Amnon, king, uh, son of King David, who raped his half-sister Tamar. That story, too, is a tale of bloody revenge. But the text says about Amnon that after raping Tamar, he hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and go out. Shechem is not like that at all. He falls in love with Dina and wants to marry her. The king, Shechem's father, and the people of the town readily accede to the Shimon and Levi's request that they become circumcised. Not only does the text not demonize the people of Shechem, Neither does it paint any of Jacob's family in a positive light. It uses the same word deceit of Shimon and Levi that it has used previously about Jacob taking Esau's blessing and Lavan substituting Leah for Rachel. Its description of all the characters from the gadabout Dina to her excessively violent rescuers to the plundering other brothers and the passive Jacob, the text seems deliberately written to alienate our sympathies. The overall effect is a story with no irredeemable villains and no stainless heroes. Why then is it told at all?
Stories don't appear in the Torah merely because they happen. The Torah isn't a history book. It's silent on some of the most important periods of time. We know nothing, for example, about Abraham's childhood or about 38 of the 40 years spent by the Israelites in the wilderness. Torah means teaching, instruction, guidance. What teaching does the Torah want us to draw from this narrative out of which no one emerges well? There is an important thought experiment devised by Andrew Schmuckler, known as the Parable of the Tribes. He says, imagine a group of tribes living close to one another. All choose the way of peace, except one that is willing to use violence to achieve its ends. What happens to the peace-loving tribes? One is defeated and destroyed by the violent tribe. A second is conquered and subjugated. A third flees to some remote and inaccessible place. If the fourth seeks to defend itself too, it will have to have recourse to violence. So this is Schmuckler's conclusion. The irony is that successful defense against a power-maximizing aggressor requires a society to become more like the society that threatens it. Power can be stopped only by power. There are, in other words, four possible outcomes. Number one, destruction. Number two, subjugation. Number three, withdrawal. And number four, imitation. In every one of these outcomes, the ways of power are spread through the system. That is the parable of the tribes. Recall that all but one of the tribes seeks peace and has no desire to exercise power over its neighbors. However, if you introduce just one violent tribe into the region, violence will eventually prevail however the other tribes choose to respond. That is the tragedy of the human condition. As I was writing this essay in the summer of 2014, Israel was engaged in a bitter struggle with Hamas in Gaza, in which many people died. The state of Israel had no more desire to be engaged in this kind of warfare than did our ancestor Jacob. Throughout the campaign, I found myself recalling the words earlier in our Pasha about mm-hmm. Jacob's feelings prior to his meeting with Esau. Jacob was very afraid and distressed about which the sages said he was afraid, lest he be killed, distressed, lest he be forced to kill. What the episode of Dina tells us is not that Jacob or Shimon and Levi were right, but rather there can be situations in which there is no simple right course of action. Whatever you do will be considered wrong, and every option will involve the compromise of some moral principle. That is Schmuckler's point, that, in his words, power is like a contaminant, a disease, which once introduced will gradually but inexorably become universal in the system of competing societies. Shechem's single act of violence against Dina forced two of Jacob's sons into violent reprisal, and in the end everyone was either contaminated or dead. It is indicative of the moral depth of the Torah 
that it does not hide this terrible truth from us by depicting one side as guilty, the other as innocent. Violence defiles us all. It did then, it does now.